O God, our refuge and our strength, who art the author of all godliness, hear, we pray thee, the devout prayers of thy church, and prayers and grant that what we ask confidently we may obtain effectually. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our opening prayer was, or is rather, the collect from the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost, which will be commemorated this coming Sunday, because this coming Sunday is the Feast of All the Saints. We'll chat about that a little bit later, if time permits. So here we are at the end, which really, in my preparation, actually now has become a beginning. I had said at the outset that there would be more opportunities like this for us in the future, and I want to commit to that for us in the month of January. Uh, what I'd like to return to specifically in the month of January is actually the Roman canon. In preparation for this evening, moving us to the Mass of the Faithful, it was very clear to me at the outset of preparation that we would not really even begin to scratch the surface of all that is contained in the canon and all that we can actually learn in what's with the, the theological content that is there. So we just simply need more time. So with that in mind, I'm going to say this now and then also say this at the end to remind you, and of course there will be information about this later on, but I think we will stay with the Tuesday evening. It'll be Tuesday the 12th, the 19th, and the 26th of January, the year of our Lord 2021. There'll be more information coming just in case the stays don't work or something else happens or, God forbid, the Lord will take me home and I can be done with this mortal coil, something exciting like that. But in the absence of me being dead, you can laugh if you want, it's all right. We will do that. So we have, we have some things to do this evening, so let me just jump right in and begin where we left off. You should have a, a couple of things in front of you. One would be the outline for this evening. This is part three, math, Mass of the Faithful. We're beginning, actually, though, with the instruction number, Roman number number two, instructions, which was left over from last week, and then we'll go to the Mass of the Faithful itself. Uh, it'll get, it will seem in some ways as if we're shortchanging the Mass of the Faithful. We're not doing that, but really, there is so much there for us to actually learn. It's kind of exciting to me to know that there is more for us to discuss and to look at as time goes on. So let's begin with the instructions themselves. And remember now, what we have done prior to that is we have prepared ourselves for a variety of different preparatory rites that have brought us to this particular moment. So the priest has arrived after the Gloria, after the Dominus Vobiscum. He then prays the Collect. And as the name itself suggests, and we touched on this a little bit last week, it is to bring, and literally to collect, to bring all of the prayers of the people who are present together in that one prayer. It reminds us, again, that what is happening at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is not, as much as it involves us as individuals, is not individual prayer, even if in the midst of it we are doing individual prayer. So some might pray their rosaries. Some might be more uh, attentive to what's happening in their missal. Some might have other prayer books that they use in order to help focus them. Those things aren't in and of themselves wrong or bad. 
But we always have to be mindful that what's happening here at the altar of sacrifice and bringing ourselves to that reality is what is actually significant. Again, just by kind of way of review, there is a four-part structure to the collect. It begins with the elevation of the soul towards God, an oratio. Again, the lifting up of our souls toward God. One of the things that emerges, even with a little bit of study, about the traditional celebration of the Mass are two things. The clearly sacrificial nature of what is being celebrated and the insistence upon the transcendence of what is being celebrated. This isn't about us. It isn't about reducing God to the things of men. It is about bringing man up to the things of God. So the first part of the, of the collect is to do precisely that, to elevate our souls toward God. Then the second part is a thanksgiving for a good which we have received from God. A recognition, again, that, 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 that disposition of thanks, which of course the whole Eucharistic sacrifice is. The third part is the petition that we're asking of God, some particular thing we want from Him. And then there is the conclusion, which is normally Trinitarian. Again, I had made reference to this before, that one of the critiques of the Western Church theologically is that we often don't give the uh, Blessed Trinity their particular due theologically, which of course is not true. Uh, it's very present in our uh, liturgical expression. And again, it finds its clarity in what we just prayed. I'm going to find the, the prayer we just prayed right now. I lost my place. So, there is the elevation of the soul toward God, there is the thanksgiving, there is the petition, and then there is the conclusion again, which normally has a Trinitarian structure attached to it. So, let's go to the prayer we prayed. O God, our refuge and our strength, who art the, who art the author of all godliness. Again, that elevation of the souls toward God, who is our refuge and our strength, who is the author of godliness. And then... Um, here we pray thee, the devout prayers of thy church, thanksgiving for a good which has been received, asking the Lord to entreat him to hear us, to draw near to us, and then this uh, petition from the Lord granted that what we ask confidently, so here it's generic, but we're asking him confidently, we also may attain effectually that it actually may do something to us. And then through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. The character of the colic, much like the character of the secret and the character of the post-communion prayer, because we're dealing with Roman liturgy, has Roman impact, meaning there is a simplicity to it. There's a sobriety to it. There's a gravitas and dignity to it. Uh, if you are a devotee of Monty Python, uh, <laughs> there are a few people out there who are. There are a few of their movies that are really not for public consumption. But of course, they poke fun at the Church of Anglican, and there's one particular movie, I can't remember if it, which one it actually is, but it has an Anglican priest standing up and praying. And of course, it's meant to be funny, but part of the funniness is actually there is certain truth to it. 
Uh, I'm not going to mimic it, but it basically is kind of a, a silliness and a frivolity in prayer. Oh, God, you who are awesome, you who are so cool, you who are nifty. Well, God is not awesome or nifty or cool. I mean, I guess maybe, in, maybe on a personal level you might want to interact with him that way. But no, there is a simplicity, a sobriety, a gravity, and a dignity to our prayer. And all of those would be general characteristics of Roman liturgy, specifically, though, of the prayers themselves. We're not given to a lot of unnecessary histrionics. There is no jumping around. There's no flailing around. There is no uh, free-flowing jazz odyssey of prayer, where for 15 minutes the priest gives to give a spiritual rift in his relationship with God. No, because I don't get to get lost in it either. It isn't about you, and it isn't about me. It's about God. And the conclusion, of course, the amen from the server and or the faithful, serves as an affirmation of what was prayed, a desire relying upon the Lord God, a consent by the one who pronounces the amen that the things that were just prayed would actually happen to them. This is the importance of the Missal. This is the importance, if you will, of remote preparation for Holy Mass to the degree that you're able to do so. Make sure when you come to Holy Mass that you're not looking at the readings for the first time. This, of course, has been strongly encouraged in the ordinary form because now everything is in translation, but this would also be operative in the extraordinary form. The information is available to you so that when you're hearing the prayer prayed, even in the language that obviously you're not able to translate immediately, it's not new to you. You're not coming at it the first time. You've had a chance to pray over it, or to return to it, even during the holy sacrifice of the Mass itself. With the collect complete, these introductory rites, and again, we're moving then to the instructions themselves, the introductory rites now have been brought to their climax. So in a sense, if we're talking about kind of a moving ourselves further and further up into the heavens, if you will, we've ascended by four steps a little bit closer to the things of God that are going to transpire during the canon itself, during the consecration, but specifically during the canon in the words of institution. The first step was this act of contrition we went through through the prayers at the foot of the altar. The second step was this longing that's expressed by the Kyrie. The third step is the praise that we give to God in the Gloria. And the fourth step that has moved us closer to the Lord is this petition, petitioning, and treating him that comes in the collect itself. All right. So then the priest structurally, physically, finds himself at the epistle side. And the epistle, normally from the New Testament, sometimes depending on the days, especially ember days, but also during certain feast days, there might be an Old Testament reading as well. But this understanding of the, what, what, what we would in ordinary form language call the liturgy of the word, if you want to have something you can hang your hat on, in one sense has its origins in temple or in synagogue worship, this reading from the Old Testament, reading from the patriarchs. The ancient liturgy of Good Friday still has the increased numbers of readings along with ember days. But initially, this increased number of readings was limited only to those masses celebrated by or within the presence of the bishop himself. By the fourth century, the epistle and the gospel are the primary lessons in the holy sacrifice of the mass. At solemn high mass, 
The epistle is chanted by the subdeacon on the edge of the sanctuary because he's standing, in a sense, on the edge of heaven itself. And the normal posture for the faithful during the epistle is the posture of sitting, a posture of receptivity, a posture of docility toward the teachings of God. And the response, of course, to the word of God is Deo gratias, thanks be to God for what has been proclaimed. Following the epistle is the gradual, and it derives its name from the word gratis or step, because the cantor who would chant the gradual would not ascend all the way up to the stairs to the area of the ambo where he would chant, but only partly up the way, only up a few steps. The gradual was initially a whole song, but again, as time went on, it was shortened, it was truncated. By the 6th century, we know it was in its shortened form. And normally, the theme of the gradual is connected to the epistle. In normal times or in in, uh, normal seasons, the gradual then is followed by the Alleluia. And the Alleluia, which more often than not has a separate but kind of ancillary reality to the epistle. So you have in the instructions, you have the epistle, you have the teaching that's present there, you have the gradual, which sometimes might even repeat language from the epistle, the actual words of the epistle itself. Then you have the Alleluia, which may continue the theme, but not necessarily so. And of course, during the Lenten season, the Alleluia is replaced with the tract, and it has an even closer connection, the tract does, to the epistle. The reason being, especially in the Lenten season, is to make sure the themes that are present in the Lenten season are accessible and available to us. And then after the gradual and the Alleluia, or the gradual and the tract, there are times, five times in the year, in the current 62 Missal, where we have these things called sequences. There's one for Easter, the Victime Pascale Laudis. There's one for Pentecost, and the Veni Sancte Spiritus. There's one for Corpus Christi, the Laude Sion, the one for the seven sorrows of our Blessed Lady, the Stabat Mater, and the Dies Irae for All Souls Day, and for Masses for the Dead. Then we come to the Gospel. Of course, the word Gospel is a translation, uh, Evangelion, of the bringing of good news. And again, there is more surrounding the Gospel than there is surrounding the Epistle, the Gradual, the Tract the Alleluia, because now we're listening to the words of God himself. And so it begins with praying a prayer of preparation, and in that prayer of preparation there is asking for a purity of heart, a a cleanliness of lip, that one can worthily proclaim the Holy Gospel. And then there is a gospel procession, in a sense mirroring the entrance procession, except now the book of the Gospels receives the honors of office. It's incensed, it's reverenced by a kiss, and it's proclaimed by one who is ordained priest or deacon. The sign of the cross is made, as we know, on our forehead and on our lips and on our heart, and as we do so, we are mindful that when we do this on our forehead, that our intellects might be blessed, and that we would understand what it is that we hear over our lips, that our speech would be blessed, that we would give this good news to all we meet, and that we might confess Christ, and that our hearts, over our hearts, 
since with our hearts, hopefully, we believe and profess faith in Christ unto justice, on our foreheads, on our lips, and over our hearts. And then there is this thing called the sermon, or a homily, which, interestingly enough, and it goes to the, uh, a point I made at the very beginning of all this, why I have removed always the maniple, but now I'm removing my chasuble as well. Because in the extraordinary form of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the sermon or the homily is not a part of Mass itself. That's why it begins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which in a sense practically is ending the action of Mass and then concludes with the sign of the cross to begin the action of Mass again. There is now the requirement since the Council of Trent that a sermon be preached on Sundays or on holy days of obligation or other great solemn feast days. In order to distinguish, in a sense, a sermon from a homily, the sermon oftentimes is preached on a particular topic that may or may not have anything to do with the epistle or the gospel. A homily oftentimes is an explanation of the text of sacred scripture. And then there's this great little word from Italian called a fervorino. It's just a little bit. It's kind of like an amuse-bouche in a, in, when you go to the restaurant. They give you just a little taste to kind of whet your appetite. That's what a fervorino is. It's just a little bit of a, a, it's a little passionate encouragement. Fervorinos are meant to be short, real concise, two or three minutes. You get up and you sit down. Sermons can be longer. Homilies can be longer as well. The fervorino is, again, meant to just kind of jumpstart things a little bit for you, give you one little word or phrase to hang your head on. And so again, the maniple, the chasuble are removed in order to drive home the point that what is happening, and that also then makes perfect sense. If I'm going to all of a sudden do a theological discursus on the, I don't know, on the spirations of the Holy Trinity, the ways of the Holy Trinity are connected to each other, uh, it might be good to pause the action of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass to accomplish that. It is also during this time during the sermon slash homily slash fervorino, depending on what is being said, that any announcements would be given by tradition that the bans for marriage would be announced. The bans of marriage are announced in order to make sure that the people getting married are actually free to be married. This would have been particularly important when people were not known or information about people's lives was not as easily accessible as it is now. But remember, I want to read something to you about the nature of the sermon so we don't lose sight of the fact. Because the beautiful thing about this, the reality of the lack of importance on the sermon, is that the priest doesn't have to be a good preacher. That's not his role. So oftentimes you would hear people complain, I, the, preach, the, the priest can't preach. Who cares? Well, maybe he's boring. Maybe he's dull. Maybe he doesn't have, uh, I don't know. It doesn't matter in one sense. Now, yes, do you want him to be eloquent? Do you want him to be John Christum or Aquinas or uh, some other great? Yes, that would be ideal. But most of us, 90%, the lion's share of us, simply are not. So, Dom Mark Kirby, a Benedictine priest, writes the following. Holy Mass celebrated worthily, reverently, and carefully is itself the most convincing of sermons. The priest who stands before the altar in a holy fear 
and who serves the Lord in a reverence and with love will touch more hearts than the most eloquent of preachers. At the altar, a priest preaches with his whole being. He enters into the sanctuary not to be seen, but to see. And in seeing the radiance of the glory of the Lord concealed in the mysteries of his body and blood, he becomes to all a sign of his real presence and a witness of his glory. And this more perfectly than Moses when he descended from the holy mountain, transfigured by the divine brightness. Holy Mass celebrated worthily, reverently, and carefully is more convincing than any sermon. This is important certainly for me as priest, but also for the lay faithful as well. So if you have a priest who does not preach well, don't hold that against him. Although we have classes in preaching and they try to prepare us for that, Again, making good eye contact and writing things out and making sure it's ordered and structured. You start with a little story that illustrates your point and then you make your point and then you go back to your... When all is said and done, the Holy Mass is going to communicate much more than I can communicate. And there are actually times that the church tells us we should not preach. The priest should sit down and be quiet because there really isn't anything more that he can actually add. After the sermon, the priest returns to the altar and then begins the creed. The creed proclaimed is the Nicene Creed. In the ordinary form, you have the option at certain times to use the Apostles' Creed. In the extraordinary form, it is always the Nicene Creed. It finds, the creed finds its entrance into the Roman liturgy in Spain in the beginning, late 6th century and was included in all liturgies in the Roman West by the 1100s. The Eastern Church offers us three reasons for our recitation of the Creed. The first is to recognize the mystery of faith that's articulated in the Creed as we celebrate it and we profess it. So first is this issue of mysterium related to the mystery of faith. And again, mystery is not unknown. Mystery is that which can't be exhausted. Secondly, they encourage the recitation, or we not encourage, give the reason for the recitation of the creed because it also speaks to doctrine itself. We pray it on days related to apostles and evangelists who are the first ones to proclaim the faith. And so as they did, so we do through the recitation of the creed. And finally, we do it in order that there might be greater solemnity to the celebration that we are entering into. When we recite the creed at the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass, we're shining a particular light on that day. There is something significant about that, whether it be the patronal feast or the consecration of the church or something of that nature. And there is a beauty that the church then guards us, in a sense, from an indiscriminate use of the creed in order to make sure that when we do recite it, we are attentive and aware of its special content and the particular reasons for its recitation. Its connection to the mystery of faith, its connection to the proclamation of doctrine, its connection to solemnity and the dignity of the celebration itself. All right. I'm going to pause there before we move to part two, which is really part three, and see if there are any questions at this juncture. We're actually ahead of ourselves. I went a little faster than I anticipated.
Okay. So the mass of the faithful. I described last week when I quoted my friend Rock Koretsky that relationship between the mass of the catechumens and the mass of the faithful. Or again, in the ordinary form, the relationship between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. That the liturgy of the Word is this letter, this writing, this thing that we have that we are able to hold on to, but the liturgy of the Eucharist is the one who wrote the letter itself. And so it can be fairly asserted that all of this is leading us to this particular experience that we're going to enter into through the reception first of the preparatory, of the offertory, then the consecration itself, and then the act of receiving Holy Communion. Those three large parts, if you will, of the Mass of the Faithful itself. And of course, this also makes sense why those who are not yet fully initiated are dismissed from the assembly, from those who have gathered, because they're not prepared. Not just a worthiness, but a lack of preparation for what actually is about to transpire. So let's talk about the offertory. There's a lot going on in the offertory. It is a complicated history, and again, because we're going to revisit some of these topics, we know this is not meant to be exhaustive, but again, just kind of throw some things out there for us. But it is a complicated history where there are a convergence of a number of different points. All of these different convergences, though, we have to keep in mind that the purpose of the offertory rites is to prepare us for the sacrifice to come. And the reason why this is a complicated history is because the offertory, depending on where we are, both in the history of the development of the Holy Sacrifice and physically where it was being celebrated, was not always considered an integral part of the reality of the consecration itself. There are a couple of reasons for that. One would have been, again, as we made reference to just a little bit last week, that when people brought gifts, they were bringing all sorts of things not just the bread and the wine that would have been used for consecration, but they were bringing all sorts of other meal stuff, if you will, in order to give those things over to God. And so there was, although there was a separation almost immediately between the celebration of the Holy Sacrifice and the people coming together for just a simple, if you will, human meal, nevertheless, at the very beginning, depending on where this was, you you had both of these things happening at the same time. And because of that, this reality of the offertory offertory would have gone on for some time because there would have been the need to separate those gifts that were going to be used for the sacrifice from those gifts that would then either be distributed to the poor who were present or those gifts that would then be used by the faithful for the meal that would have come after. So they celebrate the sacrifice and then gather together as a community to also share a meal, if you will, a human one and this spiritual and divine one. But there are two points that we have to keep in mind. That the offertory's purpose in this preparation for the sacrifice to come is providing the spiritual preparation for the faithful. So it has a spiritual component. And then also the practical component of preparing the elements that were going to be used for sacrifice. So the bread and the patent, the wine and the chalice and the water, those very basic elements of the holy sacrifice itself. And so the offertory begins 
with an invitation to prayer, Dominus Vobiscum et cum Spiritu Tuo. Then we say, he says, Oremus. But actually, it's not followed by a prayer. It's followed by the communion antiphon. So the question is, where did that prayer go? What happened to that prayer? And again, this is part of that long history. Because the prayer that would have been there, and there also would have been a very long chant, Again, over time, and again, part of the reason why this happened over time was as they began to separate the, 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 the natural gifts, the human gifts, from those that would be offered on the sacrifice, there wasn't a need for that much time for the act of separation itself. Eventually, that prayer went away completely and was only left. The only residue we have of that is the entrance antiphon itself. There was also evidence that during this time of separating the gifts, there were intercessions during this. And so the petitions that have made their way into the ordinary form. In the extraordinary form, the evidence of these are those intercessions that we have at the uh, Good Friday service in the Mass of the Presanctified. But the difference between the intercessions that we find on Good Friday those that would have been present in the early life of the church and separate now from ones that are in the ordinary form, is that all of the intercessions that would have been present during this extended period of preparation, separating all these gifts, were intercessions asking God for purification of various groups of people. So think back to Good Friday. Who do we pray for? We pray for the church, we pray for bishops, we pray for priests, we pray for catechumens, we pray for candidates, we pray for, uh, we pray for the, the, the Jews, we pray for those who are, um, those who are uh, unbaptized, we pray for those uh, who don't know God at all, we pray for the whole world. So we're praying for groups of people, and we ask certain things for those particular groups of people. As a side note, although it's not applicable to us, in the ordinary form, when these were reconstituted in the Mass of Paul VI, they were meant to be static and fixed. They weren't meant to be free-flowing, meaning you have to make up new ones every single Mass, every single day, every single Sunday. When I was newly ordained, it was my job to do that. My pastor gave me that job. And of course, when you're newly ordained, you're excited about everything. I was ordained in May. By the time I got to July, I was no longer excited about coming up with new things and creative ways to ask the Lord the same things. So why can't I just say the same thing on every Sunday? I'm asking the Lord the same thing. Does it matter that I come up with difference? And of course, I had to read the newspaper to make sure I was praying for earthquake victims or somebody who got flooded out or the hurricane. Ah, oh, it's just tiresome. Just ask the Lord for the same things. The Lord knows what I need anyway. So I don't really need to bother him with these particular intercessions. But this is where they would have been had they been there. And again, the reason for this wasn't simply to fill time. It was during this practical reality where their the elements were being prepared, the faithful were being exhorted, again, as they always are, to keep their minds and the hearts attuned to what is happening. And of course, we now have gone through this whole period of first preparation, then instruction, that now is moving us more closely into the sacrifice, the heart of what it is that we're doing. And so it seems that, yes, in her wisdom, the church says, let's make sure that people don't get lost here, which can happen sometimes. So, for example, Again, these are just examples that don't, we don't have to think about anymore. But uh, in those churches in the ordinary form where they have a rather expansive uh, exchange of peace, 
People are walking up down the aisles, shaking each other's hands, high-fiving each other. The thing goes on 10, 15, 20 minutes. Meanwhile, the divine person is on the altar, waiting for everyone to get back into the pews and calm themselves down. Now, we've gone through all this emotional ruckus, and all of a sudden we go, Lamb of God. Well, it's just hard to get your... So what this does, what these intercessions were meant to do, was to keep you focused. And again, you were praying that for these particular groups of people who would be sanctified by the very sacrifice that you were entering into. And although the, prayer, the intercessions are no longer present, there still is an understanding that everyone who is present at Mass needs to be both purified again before entering more deeply into the sacrifice and that they are indeed part of the sacrifice being offered. Two things going on there. The need for you to continue to be purified. Let me say you, us. But then also aware of the fact that we are part of the sacrifice that's being offered. And so while there is no gift procession on behalf of the lay faithful, there are gifts that are nevertheless brought forward. Even in low mass, where the chalice is already on the altar at the very beginning of the holy sacrifice itself, there still is the unveiling of the chalice and the presentation first of the paten with our Lord with the bread and the preparation of the chalice. We'll come to that in a minute. But all of that is part of this preparing the gifts, preparing the offertory, bringing forth the offering. And so as the priest is doing that and the prayers that accompany that, what all of us need to bear in mind, me as priest, you as faithful, is that we are entering more deeply into the sacrifice and therefore need to be purified to do that and also to understand that we are bringing ourselves to this sacrifice. We're on that altar as well. In a sense, as the gifts themselves are immolated, we need to do that with our own lives as well. One of the great insights from the Council Fathers, which actually was quoting from previous documents, this is in paragraph 48 of Sacra Sancti Concilium, reminds us that they, they the faithful, so it really reminds you more than me, but for all of us, the lay faithful need to not only bring with the priest the gifts offered on the altar of sacrifice, but bring themselves as gift to be altar offered along with the sacred victim himself, our Lord and Savior. This invitation then to pray that manifested itself in intercession, that then was truncated now to the antiphon itself, was also accompanied with a series of litanies prayed by the deacon with the faithful responding while the gifts are brought forward. Again, these are the various pieces of this rather complicated history of the offertory itself. So at low mass, of course, the procession is a little bit more obscured in that the chalice is already on the altar. Yet the unveiling of the chalice is considered a vestige of this procession, the gifts brought from one place and placed on the altar. At Solemn High Mass, which we said as we began the conversation about Mass, was our typical form. At Solemn High Mass, it's more visible because the deacon and the subdeacon are integral parts of this. The deacon, um, the subdeacon rather, puts on the humeral veil, carries the chalice which is veiled over to the altar. Assisted by the subdeacon, the chalice is unveiled. And then the deacon hands the patent to the priest. Of course, these are accompanied with acts of reverence of each individual reality that's happening at that moment. 
in the offertory itself is the beginning of a clearly sacrificial reality. And so as I've said at the very beginning here, the idea of sacrifice is present throughout. You are never allowed by language or by gesture or by prayer to lose sight of the fact that you're entering into the sacrifice. By the time Thomas himself reflects on the offertory, so now we're talking in the 13th century, he says that the offertory, along with the consecration and Holy Communion, make up the whole mystery of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So what would have been early on in the life of the Church, maybe a more practical reality, by the time St. Thomas is reflecting on the whole sacrifice of the Mass, the offertory and its particular parts have become an integral part. First the offertory, then the consecration, and then the act of receiving Holy Communion itself. But also is clear in the prayers that are prayed with the offering first of the patent and then the offering of the chalice, yet again articulates the nature of sacrifice, warding off the misconception that the celebration of Mass is simply a remembrance of the Last Supper or that it's a meal to commemorate the death of Jesus or merely an offering of thanks. Unfortunately, those last three ideas that the Mass excuse me, is only a remembrance of the Last Supper, or that it's merely a meal commemorating the death of Jesus, or that it's only an offering of thanks, sadly is oftentimes articulated in the ordinary form. This is one of the key dynamics that distinguishes the extraordinary from the ordinary form, is there's no obscuring of the language of sacrifice itself. So listen to these prayers that are prayed. This is the prayer that the priest prays when he's presenting the patent. Receive, O Holy Father Almighty and Eternal God, the spot, this spotless host, which I, though, which I, thou unworthy servant, offer unto thee, my living and true God, for mine own countless sins, offenses, and negligences, and for all here present, as also for all faithful Christians living and dead, that it might avail both for my own and their salvation unto life eternal. The only way that it can have this impact on the living and the dead, on the priest and the faithful for the remission of sin is because he's offering a sacrifice. And then, we offer unto thee, O Lord, the chalice of salvation, beseeching thy clemency, that it may ascend in the sight of thy divine majesty with a sweet savor for our own salvation and for that of the whole world. And again, the response to both of these prayers is amen. So every aspect now of the offertory, even, again, with its oftentimes confusing history, its purpose is to prepare us spiritually by reminding us to enter more deeply into the sacrifice and to remind us that we also are part of that which is being sacrificed, to prepare the gifts themselves, and to never allow our minds to wander away from this reality of what it is that is about to happen on the altar itself. After the priest has presented the gifts at low mass, but more importantly, even at high mass, he washes his hands. Initially, in some ways, like the offertory, there was a utility to this gesture. He did so because he practically had to do that. After all, he may have been handling all these things that were filthy. 
and so he washes his hands. But now it has a spiritual attachment as well. He washes his hands, and the prayer that accompanies the washing of his hands is the desire that he have a greater degree of purity about what it is that he's doing. Again, a purity of heart. He's already prayed that his sins would be remitted, that his sins would not stand in the way. Now he's asking for a purity of heart. Again, every step closer, there's almost a, you can feel a certain degree of trembling before the awesomeness, truly, of what it is that is about to transpire. Of course, if he has incensed at solemn high mass or at high mass, again, the washing of hands has a certain necessity and a certain utility attached to it as well. But even at low mass, or maybe not even at, but along with low mass, there's always this reality of the prayer he prays asking for that greater purity of heart as he moves closer to the sacrifice. After the washing of hands, there is an appeal to the intervention of the triune God, whose sacrifice we return to him. So he says, Receive, O Holy Trinity, this oblation which we make to thee in remembrance of the passion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in honor of Blessed Mary, ever Virgin, of Blessed John the Baptist, the Holy Apostles, Peter and Paul, of all the saints, that it may avail to their honor and our salvation, and that they may vosace to intercede for us in heaven, whose memory we now keep on earth, the same Christ our Lord. Amen. That beautiful, and notice the beautiful di theological dynamic that's operative there. Obviously, first, uh, this exhortation to the triune God to accept that which is given because it is this recapitulation of the Paschal mystery, the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then also the intervention of the saints themselves to assist us so that what they have already achieved, we might be able to achieve. We're calling down everyone to assist us in being lifted higher up in what it is that we are doing. After that, the priest turns and he says, Orate fratres, pray, brethren. Now, again, in this prayer, he's inviting the church militant, the congregation gathered together to join him in the sacrifice. But there also is an awareness that the sacrifice now that is being offered, lest there be any confusion. Again, you were invited to put yourself on the altar, but he also says your sacrifice and my sacrifice. Rather, flip that. My sacrifice and your sacrifice may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. Then there is this prayer called the secret, which as its name implies, is just that. A prayer would have been prayed in secret or in quiet. It's not hidden or unknown. It's just prayed in quiet. It's prayed silently over the oblation. And normally the secret has one theme only, and that is the awareness of the sacrifice being offered on the altar. In much the same way that the collect concluded those preparatory rites, the secret concludes the offertory rites. And if we talked about that four-tiered step that we experienced in the preparatory rites leading us to the instruction, now all of the language that, we have, that we've used throughout the preparatory rites has been language of gift and offering and oblation and sacrifice and host and victim. This is not common language for us. We don't use words like this 
in our normal interaction and conversation with each other. And again, it, all of this serves to reinforce what is happening on the altar of sacrifice. Gifts have been brought forward. Offerings are made. Oblations are being done. Sacrifice is being entered into. Host and victim are present here. This takes us then to the consecration itself. So the Mass of the Faithful can be divided into three subparts. The Offertory, which we've just completed. The Consecration, which we're about to address now. And then the act of receiving Holy Communion itself. And then finally, the Mass concludes with the act of thanksgiving. We'll get there in a minute. Okay. So this is the, uh, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm kind of angry at myself for this, but it's, again, it gives us a good reason to come back together again. Uh, we're not going to give proper due to the canon that deserves really a whole class. You could, teach a, uh, you could teach a whole class on the canon itself and all the theology that is present there. We're going to come back to this in, with, in a little bit more in-depth during the month of January, but this is to get us started. So the, the consecration, which actually happens in the canon itself, is surrounded by prayers both before and after. In a sense, they serve in a way as kind of a, almost kind of a, a beautiful protective coding, if you will, to this most sacred moment of the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass. These words and these gifts that no longer are simple bread and wine, but now, by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and doing that which God has commanded, become His body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so it makes perfect sense that this is done in quiet. It's done, with, uh, it's done in, uh, in silence, in, in a low voice. Uh, it's done with this intimacy between the priest and the altar and the tabernacle and the sacrifice itself. Because of the power of the words and the reality that all of this is that it's unfolding here. And so it begins with this dialogue, at which point the priest, facing the east, as he now faces to the Holy of Holies, says, Dominus Fobiscum. Remember, normally he says that he turns to you and says that the Lord be with you. But now he's facing this way. Because this is now, now we're, now we're there. All of this has brought us to this precise moment. And so as he is about to enter into the Holy of Holies, he doesn't turn to you, although he does invite you. He says the Lord be with you. He doesn't, he's inviting you to join him in this reality, and he remains faithful. He remains facing, pardon me, he remains facing that way. The preface, which is going to be concluded with the Sanctus that's going to lead us into the canon, the preface normally has three major themes in it. The preface is a general praise of God. There is in the preface a particular reason for thanksgiving. And the third theme that is present is that we're joining with the angelic hosts in giving praise to God. So general praise to God, a particular reason for thanksgiving and praise to God, and then joining what we're doing in, in, with the angelic hosts and offering up this praise to God. The preference prepares us to make a solemn entrance into the mysteries that now we have prepared ourselves for. And so what happens at the end of the preface? We take up the angelic voices of the Sanctus. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. 
Echoing the, the manifestation of the theophany that is about to take place. Holy, holy, holy. We're anticipating that's precisely what we are going to experience, who we're going to experience on the altar of sacrifice, the Holy One Himself. And so we have entered, we've had this preface that has led us to praise God, to ask God uh, to, or to express some particular reason for thanksgiving, to join our voices to that of the angelic uh, choirs and hosts, and now we literally take up the theme of holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. The words of the Sanctus echo the words of the prophet Isaiah. And then the greetings of the faithful when our Lord enters into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. The church militant responds to the Sanctus with the Benedictus. And all this happening at that precise moment. And of course, what's the posture of the priest? He's bowed down in a gesture of humility, which he will again return to in the canon itself. So I want to talk, how are we doing? Everybody's okay? A lot going on today. I know. It's okay, we're going to come back in January. This will tease you a little bit to come back. You have two months to kind of ruminate, and then we'll be together again in January to go through all of this. Because, and again, this beautifully, and I tell you, this was fun for me. So if only one of you had shown up, this still would have been fun for me. It was great to sit with books at my desk for hours on end. Uh, things that I've read, things that I've studied, but coming at them yet again and realizing the richness and the depth that is there. I could live a lifetime and never exhaust. So if you feel a little bit overwhelmed, it's all right. It's a good feeling to have. Uh, it's not a bad thing at all. It doesn't mean you're not smart enough to get it. It's just, just there's a lot to get. But of course, we're dealing with God. Of course, we should feel slightly overwhelmed. Our minds are puny in comparison to the mystery that he allows us to actually enter into. So let me talk about first the gestures that we see present in the canon, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the theology of the canon, and then we'll talk a little bit about its structure but I'm intentionally going to avoid going in too much depth because this is, there's, a, there's just a lot here, and I don't want to obscure it and confuse you even more. So there are a number of gestures that you witness, excuse me, from the priest during the praying of the canon. The first is he raises his hands to God. This gesture of asking that our prayers ascend to God. He also asks that during the incensation, as he's incensing that the gifts and the prayers that have all been brought together here and coalesced at the altar, at the altar of sacrifice would indeed be lifted up to God. So there are hands raised in prayer, ascending up to the Lord. There are hands extended, especially at the epiclesis, which is the calling down of the Holy Spirit. The, this gesture of hands extended, hands praying over, has been a sign of blessing, asking blessing something come down on, and that's precisely what is happening at the Epiclesis, is a calling down of the Spirit. And in one sense, the Epiclesis was even more significant in the canon before the introduction of the various signs of the cross that the priest makes both before and after consecration. 
But then there also are the signs of the cross. The priest makes the sign of the cross on himself. He makes the sign of the cross over the gifts before they're consecrated. He makes the sign of the cross on the gifts after they're consecrated, not for blessing, because now they're the Lord's body and blood, but as an, indi- as an indication of his presence there after consecration. So raised hands, extended hands, the signs of the cross, and then the elevations. The elevations are a relatively new introduction into the rite itself. They come from the 12th century. And there is a sense by the elevation and the introduction of the elevation to allow all those who are present to satisfy a thousand different speeds. So, now, having said that, the dialogue mass was encouraged in order to increase participation. So I'm not saying, so I'm never going to tell you you should not respond. I guess I would say that my exhortation would be, if you are going to respond, So, for example, the 645 Mass now has become less of a dialogue Mass. The 8 o'clock Mass, now we're into kind of the nitty-gritty, our 8 o'clock Mass still is a dialogue Mass. The majority of the faithful, who are 8 o'clock people who come to 8 o'clock normally? Okay. Who are 645? And everybody else, 1130? Okay. So, 1130 Mass, this is not applicable because that's really a conversation happening between the server and the priest and then the cantor the scola, and the choir as well. Um, Although, again, if you wanted to chant the creed or chant the gloria, theoretically you could. There wouldn't be anything that would impede you from doing that. So my only exhortation would be, be aware of the fact when you decide to participate that if you're the only one, don't. If there are others, join them. And try to be cognizant of praying together. So... It was always something that we were instructed um, when I was learning the ordinary form when I was in the seminary, was when we pray, we had to pray at a pace that allowed the lay faithful to pray along with me. I guess, but it's hard. It's a hard thing to do, to get everybody to move at the same pace and the same rhythm. So I'm not discouraging the dialogue mass. I'm not encouraging the dialogue mass. It might be something that we come back to later. I know that was part of the history of the oratory. But then part of that also, too, was the oratory was in a much smaller place that more greatly facilitated the dialogue mass. We're in a seat, church that seats 700 comfortably. And on Sunday, 645, if I have 75 people spread throughout, it's going to be hard for everyone to be kind of speaking at the same pace together. Does that make sense? Does that help you? Yes. And I thought part of why they were doing it was to simplify things, so how can I be more complex? Well, no, that, that theme of simplification was into the ritual itself. When it comes to the question was the Novus Ordo has a cycle of three readings. And I'm not sure I want to spend a lot of time talking about the problems with the Novus Ordo, by the way. So I'm going to give you this question, then we're done talking about the Novus Ordo, because I'm not really interested in talking about the Novus Ordo. Um, but having, all right, but it's a fair question. The, the purpose of the lectionary was theoretically to expose more of the faithful to sacred scripture, hence the cycle itself. That's all I'm going to say about that. JT? 
We do. I don't know who they are. I haven't been able to find the attestations yet. I know that they're in there. I don't know where the paper is that says who they are. The question, I have remember to repeat the question. The question was, uh, are there any saints' relics in the altar? The answer is yes, there are. I don't know who they are because I can't find the paperwork. It's here somewhere. And my faithful steward is going to find <laughs> She knew I was going to say that. She's going to find it for me. So um, I don't really do anything on my own. Donna takes care of me. Yes, ma'am. Oh, thank you for making reference to that. So let's take a look at that. If you have the sheet in front of you that says the resources, thank you for that. I almost totally forgot about that. And these resources are not exhaustible at all. These are merely ones that I've used. So first of all, I put at the top three missiles. Uh, the Bronius Press Missile, which is, the, which is strictly 62, and then the Father Lassance and the St. Andrew Missile, which are pre-55. The, the question was about the resources, but it really wasn't a question. The question also is, where would we start? But I'm just going to talk through the resources. So, so if one were looking at these resources, where would you start? So the online resources really are there to give you a whole host of things. So that's really if you're looking for something particular, those online resources would be there to just kind of give you, whether it be readings or answer some questions. There, there are a lot of different things in these online resources. In the print resources... The book I would recommend to you would be the one by Father Jackson called Nothing Superfluous. If you were going to start, that's where I would start. I also recommend any books by Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. Or Kwasniewski. I'm not pronouncing it correctly. I feel bad that I don't. But anything he writes, you need to read. He's very good. But if you're starting somewhere, you're not quite sure to start, that's why I would start. I put Youngman's book on here, The Mass of the Roman Rite, in two volumes. This is a kind of a classic book, a little bit controversial, but he does do some good research here for us. That is not a place to start. Okay? Do not start with Youngman's book. I don't care how bright you think you are, how industrious, how much time you have on your hand, you're going to break yourself if you do that. That's all I'm saying. If you want to do it, knock yourself out. And as time goes on, hopefully we can update this and put information on our website as well. There's a lot out there. So if you have a question, Google it, and you'll be able to find it. And if you're not sure of the origins of a particular site, email me and I'll be able to give you some direction as to whether or not you need to spend your time there or not. I want to thank everyone for coming. I know not everyone... Oh, I, think, I don't know if everyone's been here all three weeks or not. This is great. This is a good beginning for us. We will continue in January. More information will come. Uh, my telephone number and my email address are on the website, so if you need or you have questions, you can certainly email me. I will email you back as soon as possible. Let me give, uh, let me pass out. Thank you. Donna's going to pass out for us. Or actually, let's do this. If everyone on your way out would pick up at the tables, there is a form that just basically a little evaluation, a little feedback. Any improvements you would want to make, any um, 
suggestions for topics in addition to other topics, any other concerns or any things that you want to bring to my attention about this reality. Um, my final exhortation again, especially for those who maybe are new and you've only recently, maybe last several months, have been celebrating the extraordinary form, be patient. And remember, grace does not come through understanding. Grace comes in many ways through simply being present and showing up and engaging that particular way. You're not I had someone say to me one time or uh, make a comment that they felt that, that everybody else knew what was going on and they were, they were part of a, it was kind of a secret club. We're not a secret club. We don't have a secret handshake. Everything that I've told you is, well, all I did was put it all together in one place. But all this information is also available to you as well. I've got, I've got nothing that I haven't given to you that you can't have access to as well. My final, final comment, and then I'm going to be quiet. And this is an exhortation to continue onward, is because of the richness and the depth of the traditional Mass and what it is that it brings to us. Because we are dealing with fixed realities, some of which are almost 2,000 years old, it does a beautiful job of keeping us humble, keeping our sights upon God, keeping us rooted upon those things that actually matter. Given the nature of the world in which we live and the nation in which we find ourselves now, seems even more necessary that we find ourselves rooted and in place. And the traditional Mass and the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine are a good way and a good place to be able to do that. So, thanks everyone. Let's please rise. In Dominus Vobiscum, Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis, Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, descended super vos et maniat semper. Amen. Go in peace.